three people are watching this item on eBay. So wow. get it, get it while you can, Portlanders. So, so um, <laughs> is, a, is a carpet urinary yellow? Oh. In color? I don't. It's not even. It just. Oh, that's just... I just showed Fu a picture. No. He is unimpressed. No. Why were people taking pictures of this? I, I have no idea. That is the dullness. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fu Lu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers. For writers. All right, we are on the second day of being in Portland, the first day of AWP. Kate is getting the table ready, getting her lipstick on. We have about maybe 20 minutes before the gates open. Tell them about the uh, amazing Uber ride we had on the way over here. Oh, in the Tacoma? Yeah. Lisa was so nice. Yeah, Lisa was great. Shout out to uh, Lisa. Our Uber driver. She was letting us know about the good places to eat. Yeah. Vietnamese. And the tourist attractions here. Check out the falls. Yeah, it was good. Also, I should say there's a picture of me somewhere on social media um, that was taken against my will. Where there are three glasses of Bordeaux in front of me. I want everyone to know that was a flight. Those are just tastes. Bordeaux. And it was delicious. Thank you, good people at uh, the Noble Rot, which is a Noble restaurant. Noble Rot, yes. Noble Rot. Oh, my goodness. It uh, was uh, a lifesaver for us, was, I think. Yeah. They let us bring my big ass rolly bag into this super nice restaurant and park it by their wall <laughs> park it right by the table it was covered in rain yeah we were wheeling streaks of wetness across their nice hand scraped Oregon pine whatever I have no, I have no idea they probably could just see the frustration and weariness just painted across our faces you know i gotta say we we got up to leave and i had this like shame moment where like i look bedraggled we both looked really tired and all i wanted to do was get out of the restaurant I, like when we came in there were only a couple people in the restaurant uh-huh. when we left it was packed the bar was packed and we're like trying to negotiate this giant wheelie bag and I turn around, and Fu is, like, standing there chatting up a waitress and someone else about the best place to buy groceries in Portland. I, all I wanted to do is leave, and Fu is still <laughs> engaging in conversation. And, 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 and Kate is like, Fu, what, what are you doing? Why, why are you? It, it was the same thing coming into the restaurant. Yes. I, felt, I, I felt like I was talking to, to one woman at the bar. About about Portland and about Texas and uh, and all sorts of things and and Kate probably thought oh foo what what are you doing what are you doing oh what is your name. 
Uh, so I'm James Charlesworth. Uh, my debut novel, The Patricide of George Benjamin. All right, do, I didn't know if we were no, starting. No, yeah, no, 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 no. Just continue. <laughs> okay, let me rewind. <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, can you reintroduce yourself, James? Uh, yeah, my name's James Charlesworth. My debut novel, The Patricide of George Benjamin Hill, came out January 15th. Right on. It's beautiful. Thank you. I yeah. love the cover art. Thank you. Yeah, I was pretty pleased with the cover, too. They gave me three options to choose from, and that was my favorite. They nice. were all great, but that was my favorite, so I'm glad that's the one they went with. Published by Arcade. Right. Arcade's a, an imprint of Skyhorse, right uh, which is a, a, an independent in New York. Can so. you tell us about the journey, the publishing journey? I can tell you about the journey. So... Uh, I started writing this book in 2007. Uh, right, so that's a she <laughs> was that like the wire? <laughs> so um, yeah, that year in 2007, I had been living in Maine for the previous four years, and I was working on this sprawling novel, this epic novel that had reached 800 pages. Oh, and damn. in 2007, I decided to throw it out, move back to Boston feeling kind of like a failure uh and but i started patricide uh, a couple weeks later and yeah 12 years later here we are okay, 12 so short what, years later what about the 12 years what did you learn that helped shape patricide the 12 years with the 800 yeah. page tome you know what i a lot there was a lot of learning that took place before the 12 years um and i mean there were so many things that shaped it i mean it's what I, what I guess I learned is um, the art of patience. Oh, that's good. Right? Yeah. And, I mean, sometimes writing a book is a quick process. Sometimes it's a seemingly endless process. Yeah. But yeah. There, is, there is a light at the end of that tunnel, you know? Yeah, And yeah. I guess that's um, sort of what the 12 years taught me. I mean, it was, it was a long process of writing this book and there were so many stages of writing it uh that it's difficult to go back and like come away with like oh here was here was like the one lesson i learned right, from right, it. Right. but um but it wasn't 12 years wasted for sure oh goodness no yeah. no and i mean the thing is, it, i actually it took i think eight years of those were writing the book and then i got i got to age it fairly quickly but then it was a year until we sold it and then it was two years from the time i sold the book to when it came out so like you know there's the process of writing the book but then by the time this book came out it had been four years since I finished it right. so like if you're a writer <laughs> if you're a writer who's working on your debut novel right now like plan on not seeing it for many 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 years oh god James can we be is there something positive can we be a little more optimistic? oh I mean no. what's positive is is that I have a book out That's you know and like yeah. everyone who's listening you're gonna get there if you unless you unless you give up you right. know what I mean like if right. you keep pursuing it you're gonna get there yeah as so I'm going to blur my table that I'm here with. I was going to ask you, tell us about this awesome thing you have going. Right, so I'm here with this group called Debut Authors 19. It's a group that we started on Facebook. Um, we have a table at AWP. Uh, I guess it's T10045, but I guess people won't hear this until after that. But um, so we started when I, my book was originally scheduled to come out in 2018. So I found this group online called Authors 18. Then my pub date got moved to 2019, and 
this guy Mike Chen and I helped start, or we started the Debut Authors 19 group. So we now have almost 200 members. It's all mostly novels, a few memoirists that we sort of accidentally let in and then we really liked them, <laughs> so we kept them around. <laughs> so um, we have close to 200 members. It's all debut writers with books coming out this year. Check us out at debutauthors19.com. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram uh, at debutauthors19. Yeah. So many awesome writers. Yeah. I mean, you can just it's a great way for you to find just some amazing books that you're going to love that are coming out this year. Some of them already out. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Jim. Yeah, no problem. It. Thanks for having me. Cool. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, we pulled Hannah Meredith the amazing woman with two first names off the street here at AWP. Hey, he's wearing a moth shirt. <laughs> and we're doing, um, we're going to do some short fiction reading. Um, Hannah does, uh, Hannah teaches. Well, why don't you just tell us what you do? Sure. We'll, yeah. Okay, so um, I'm an instructor, uh, composition and sophomore level literature at the University of Louisiana at Monroe. Um, and I've been involved with a project that we do called Beer and Bards, and um, it takes place off-site, so at the local pub. And here lately, I have been writing a lot of short pieces that are geared toward that oral performance at Beer and Bards, and then this is one of those pieces. So it's a sh it's short fiction, but it's also yeah. an oral performance. Yeah, we spent some time talking about um, how what we write sort of can inhabit both both worlds. It yes. lives on a page somewhere, but also um, in a lot of ways lives more fully when it's performed. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we got to talking about that. And then here we are. Hannah's going to read us one. Um, so Tell excited. us the, the backstory for this piece. Um, I, okay, so... When I teach uh, 1001 Intro to Composition, you know, these, these first-time freshmen come into my classroom and they're all nervous and terrified and scared. And our first assignment is a narrative essay where they have to write about themselves. And I'm awful and I make them write about their most embarrassing moment ever. And they all look at me with like this cringe and horror and please don't make me do this. I'm going to drop the class today. And to help them feel at ease, I read them my most embarrassing uh, moment narrative and because uh, I tell them I'm like I'm not I can't ask you guys to put yourselves out there like right. this unless I do it first right <laughs> so that's how this story was born this oh, right is on. kind of my most embarrassing um, moments in life okay <laughs> have at it all right are we ready yeah I have IBS it's a lot easier to just say those letters than it is to say irritable bowel syndrome but either way, the result is the same. I shit, messy, and a lot. The series of events that brought me to the point of being able to admit that out loud and to a room full of strangers should have happened chronologically, but it didn't. I should have realized when I was in junior high that something wasn't right. I don't go number two at school, that's gross. I once overheard blonde Stephanie say to brown-haired Stephanie in a huddle of their friends, not bothering to whisper. What? I thought. How is that possible? I've already been three times today. 
Assuming that she must be lying, I dismiss the comment. No one can hold it that long. In high school, my symptoms worsened, but I still didn't know that they were symptoms. I reasoned that I must just have a picky stomach, and it picked more things to not like than to like. But puberty and hormones and boys made my picky stomach feel more like a picky bitch. A bitch that ruined dates and canceled plans and triggered very badly spun cover-up lies. It got to the point that I wouldn't go out in any place where I wasn't guaranteed easy access to a bathroom. I avoided my friends anytime I felt like my stomach might go on what I like to call a rampage. I became so paranoid and anxious that I even started carrying around extra underwear and then a spare roll of toilet paper, then extra shorts and jeans too, just in case. But I never actually had an accident, like, on myself. Well, there was this one time when I was pregnant. Huge and pregnant. I was home alone eating a Twix bar and in between bites of Raymond noodles when I felt that familiar... I dropped that last bite of Twix so fast and tried to stand up. Emphasis on the word tried. I groaned with a what? and half rolled with a and anyone watching would have expected good god y'all to be the next strained phrase to pass through my lips I didn't make it my oversized body had merged with the crack of the couch to become one and refused to let me go the hot wet smell of death filled the entire living room I reached for my discarded piece of Twix and ate that last bite the butt end and sat there (laughs) sobbing in my own shit for the next 30 minutes until my episode of Law & Order SVU ended. That may have been one of the worst moments of my life, but at least I was home, alone, and it was a different kind of shame and misery. One that makes the following public worst moment of my life not look so bad in comparison. I was still big, huge, and pregnant. But this time, I was running late to class. I waddled up the stairs of Walker Hall, heaving my book bag off of my sciatic nerve with every step that I took when I got the walking farts. The first one startled me. I looked over my shoulder, expecting to see some embarrassed student behind me, but taking this next step, I squished out another one. Nope, it's just me. (laughs) I stopped and listened. No other footsteps echoed in the stairwell. So feeling safe, I continued to climb the stairs and squished out a new gushy fart with each step. Wishing the farts would give my poor swollen belly some relief, I looked up as I approached the last few steps leading to the third floor. An unknown pair of eyes locked with mine from over the top of a book. I knew that if I stopped walking, I wouldn't make it up those stairs. And while a big part of me wanted so desperately to turn around and run, run home and never come back, burn my books and say, fuck that place, I'm never going back, a bigger, more unbalanced part of me knew that those walking farts meant that I needed to find a bathroom. (laughs) The closest one being before me, not behind me. I never slowed down, with eyes locked on this guy sitting at the top of the landing with his book now perched on his lap, I uttered with a long, exhaled breath, It is what it is. He replied, My sister's pregnant, so I get it. (laughs) I gave him a nod, Yeah, you get it. And I pushed through those big brown double doors and headed to the nearest toilet. As I shuffled into my stall, I let the relief of that encounter wash over me. 
It had happened, but now it's over. I had farted a nasty, ungodly amount in front of some strange dude. An incident that would have killed me with shame and embarrassment in any other circumstance. But my urgent need to reach the restroom pressed me forward, and my overwhelmingly large pregnant state wouldn't allow me to retreat. I left my embarrassment in that stall with everything else I'd just gotten rid of, and I shuffled out of that restroom. No fucks given. In doing so, I had a flashback. One that took me all the way back to high school, to a time when something as embarrassing as what I'd just experienced would have sent me home for good. To be a college dropout, rather than risk the possibility of ever showing my face in front of that stairway dweller again. High school Hannah would have become a shut-in, a cat lady who's afraid of cats. Pregnant Hannah forgot to give a fuck, but it took six years for don't give a fuck Hannah to finally emerge, and I'll never forget that day in high school when I saw firsthand what not giving a fuck could actually look like. In the 10th grade, I went with my high school track team to Baton Rouge to compete at LSU for the state championship. In our downtime between the two days of events, we walked around one of the biggest malls I've ever seen in my life. Where do y'all want to go next? Joey asked, tossing the paper from his food tray into the trash can. I think I saw a watch store this way. Let's go there, Brian replied. The group prepared to merge into the heavy foot mall foot traffic, headed toward Brian's requested destination. I finished my taco and trailed behind them when that struck mercilessly out of nowhere. Uh, hey, uh, guys, I left something. I'll, I'll be right back. I'll find you. I called as I hurtled away from them towards the restroom. Sam shrugged at me in acknowledgement before I turned away. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Holy baby Jesus, Lord, if you love me at all, please, please don't let me shit myself. Oh, sweet baby Jesus, just hold it on. Oh, we're almost there. Just a few more steps. Here we go. Here we go. I pep-talked myself during my half-lopsided jog to the toilet, and once inside, I bolted to the farthest, emptiest aisle of stalls where I chose a secluded area to unleash hell. I sat down and squeezed everything together while I waited for the last few pair of feet to head out of my direction. Go, woman, leave! Save yourself! I was about to drop the biggest bomb of the week when I heard a slow shuffling of feet headed my way. The sound of flip-flops on a slightly sandy tile floor with feet too lazy to pick up all the way glided into the stall right next to me. No! I heard the woman plop down with a heavy casual thud that said she wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. I looked down at my intruder and I glimpsed the only piece of her that I could see. A brown foot sitting in a foam green flip-flop. But the most striking image is one I have not forgotten until this day. She had watermelons painted on her toes. The green rind matched her flip-flops. Taking in this sight, rap music blasted from her cell phone, something I would have danced to if I weren't so preoccupied. She answered it. Hey, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just got in here. Yeah. Give me about 30 minutes. I'll meet you out front. Mm-hmm. Love you, too. This cannot be happening. I heard erupt beside me. Lord Jesus, I apologize. She said these words, but I don't think she even knew I was there, crouched in silence with my insides writhing. She was just apologizing to the whole bathroom. 
Her phone rang once more, but she silenced it, and after a few more vocal strains broken up by notifications sounding on her phone, I heard the toilet paper roll spin a few times in her stall with a distinct rip of cheap paper that lacked dotted lines. Mm-hmm, here we go. She finished and shuffled out of that stall at the same pace that she'd shuffled in. I could hear her at the sink. She was humming to herself a song I didn't recognize, but it had the tune of a spiritual hymn. Within a few more moments, she was shuffling out, and I was finally able to release all that tortured me. I never saw her face, but I'll never forget her voice, or the casual way that she answered to whoever baby was during that phone call that she took. That day, Miss Shuffles strolled leisurely into my life and showed me everything that I wanted to be. I listened to her leave the restroom and I thought, I love her. I want to be her. I want to be able to tell my friends and family the truth when I have to go. I want to be able to tell my boyfriend, my future husband. I'm sick of lying and being embarrassed. Miss Shuffles ain't. She's my hero. I realized something else about Miss Shuffles several years later when an image of her foot on that tiled restroom floor popped randomly into my mind. She had watermelons on her toes. This woman took one of the most offensive, most common racial stereotypes and she said, fuck your stereotype. I like watermelons and they look so good with my green flip-flops. Miss Shuffles is on a whole other level, y'all. And her memory continues to stay with me to this day. Inspiring me to go when needed, only apologize when I feel like it, and never lie about shit. Oh my goodness. That's it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing today. No, that's thank you awesome. for allowing me to. I've I've always enjoyed reading it to my classes and this yeah. this is a new thing for me, so well, we wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Endeavor. I hope you find the perfect way to keep doing this and inspiring I, me, your students. Me too. too. I, I'm going to keep working on this, I think. Keep us in mind. Let us know how it's going. Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate right. it. Thank you. Yeah, so tell us who you are and what you're doing at the conference. Uh, my name is Shana McAuliffe, and I'm at AWP like so many other writers, uh, seeing old friends and hopefully meeting some new friends here. I've met a new friend, <laughs> um, and my first novel just came out recently, so this seems like, oh, this will be fun. I That's should, perfect. I should talk about my work. You totally should. So what's your, uh, in your reading, you're doing a reading from that novel then here? I will read from it, but I'm reading for Southern Humanities Review, not for my press. Oh, okay. Um, and it's at the same time as my press reading. So I'll go to my press party after after the Southern Humanities Review reading. That's the thing about the conference is there's so much stuff to see and do. And I know. they actually coincided. That's crazy. I always say that um, I feel like a failure before I even get to AWP because I already know that I can only do like the most minuscule amount of things that I would like to attend and see people. And there will never be enough time. Yeah, yeah, it is sort of overwhelming. Fu and I were talking before um, before you walked up about the kind of things that you overhear at AWP, and we weren't even like I think the doors had just opened, and we heard this guy walk by and say, "God, it's so overwhelming!" And he just you know just kept going. 
It would have been great if you could have caught that and it could have been like the sound bite heading of this episode. You have a good ear for <laughs> podcast teasers. Yes, for sure. We, yeah, yeah. We could recreate it. We could just have Shana do it right now. <laughs> You're pretty good at it. Oh, thanks. You think it sounded okay? Yeah. Okay. So tell us about your novel. Um, so my novel is called The Good Echo. It's on Black Lawrence Press. Um, it is a historical novel. Oh, great. It's about a dentist um, and his wife. And their son dies after the father, the dentist, performs a root canal on him. Yeah, really sad. Um, and then it covers many years of their life after that as okay. they uh, figure out where you go after your life is just falling apart. And for them, that means traveling the world, doing research into the theories that the dentist uh, has come up with based on what's happened. And um, it, it mostly focuses on the, the wife's point of view. Okay. What was the what was the germination of this concept for this novel? Well, I actually read about the characters that inspired it were real real people. Yeah. Um, in a Michael Pollan book. Oh, I love Michael Pollan. <laughs> yeah. Which book? Uh, Omnivore's Dilemma. How do I not? I guess I don't even. It's like that. one paragraph. Just tossed off, and <laughs> yeah. this is how novels get born. Yes. Yeah. Right on. And I was like, oh, that right. sounds like one of my characters. I think I'll look into that. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So tell me, uh, tell me what you hope. Uh, I usually start with like, what's your biggest gripe about the AWP? So I'm going to start there, and then you can tell me like something positive about it as well. But biggest gripe. I, I think I already told you my biggest gripe. It's that I feel like a failure before <laughs> I've even gotten here. Um, so what do you gain from having that? You know, I think this year what I am hoping to gain, and what I've gained in the past is. You know, I, I teach writing and I really love it, um, but coming here is a chance to sort of get fed by other writers, mm -hmm. which I don't get that much. I live in a pretty small town, there are a lot of writers around, but there's something different about being in a place that's just full of writers and hearing their work and getting new exciting books yeah. that I can't just pick up in my own town and then seeing friends that I don't get to see all in one place. Yeah, that's really good. We've been, we've been sort of bogged down in all of the travel woes and the book carting and the book hawking and all of that and, and it, you sort of lose perspective about you know uh, what we're here to do and I appreciate that returning some of that perspective to me so you just fed me oh great yeah. um, what's next for you what's on your uh, writing agenda do you have a new project in the works um, yeah a couple of them I suppose I've started working on a new novel that is not historical because I wanted to take one element of the research out of it. Also, just I got interested in something that wasn't historical, but it's still kind of too early to talk about it. Yeah, gotta protect your little. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, tell our listeners where they can find your work. Um, SPD Small Press Distribution um, is distributing it, and Black Lawrence Press also. Really? Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, yeah Daniel, you're like the Steve Martin of our um, SNL podcast. <laughs> I, 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 I really, it's I'm like really touched by that. It's <laughs> It's like Steve Martin and Martin Short and some somebody else who are all vying for like all Martins. The number Doc Martin. Doc Martin, yeah, <laughs> I think that. Uh, That's actually a perfect segue. 
uh-huh. into what I wanted to talk to you about today. Uh-huh. I want to talk about AWP Fashion. Dude, it is... We're on HBO, we can, we can press. Yes, this is HBO. It's fucking bananas. <laughs> it's fucking bananas. It is like, um, I saw, I saw last night, um, everyone wants to, um, to like connect, and I get that, it's, it's a beautiful thing about AWP, um, but connect in the weirdest ways where they're like, hey, what can you do for me? But then if the fashion is part of that, I was at my, I, I came in last night from the worst greeting ever. I won't say where it was, but it was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was booked as this, um, as this sort of a community reading where they were like, uh, this is, we're doing this for the Latino community. And, uh, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna support white people. I go out there and it's this project of a bunch of, um, it's like bodegas, people who are undocumented who created these bodegas uh-huh. and none of them knew we were coming. And so it's like, imagine that, imagine that like you show up in someone's living room and you're, there's like a hundred poets and they're just like, what the fuck is going on? This is a fire emergency. They were not invited. And we're like, no, but we're doing this. We're doing this for you. <laughs> we're doing this for the community. But it, was, it wasn't even that. It was like the most egregious part of it was like, is, you have to think of these are refugees. Huelitas oh, who are like no, 90 years old dude. who see uh, <laughs> people coming in in like BDSM gear. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, People I fled, trying to like out Portland, I, Portland. I, I fled from rural Guatemala to come here. I, I crossed nine rivers and I basically uh, am here. And uh, this BDSM guy wants a paleta and he doesn't. Could you translate, please? <laughs> like, oh, shit. It was just so. It was just so. Um, and it, it, you can do BDSM. It's, this is not a knock on BDSM. This is not a knock on. But it's sort of like we just showed up in their living room, man. And it was basically in their living room. Oh, and uh, it was, anyway, the fashion has been incredible. But like, I, came, I, I came home. I came home after that, and uh, in my hotel like lobby, people were still trying to connect. But I just remember just this, this, it was just like the outfits were just like you, you kind of know. Like I'm not, I'm okay, man. Tap my card. I gotta get my room. This is fucked up. I, I'm don't, we can edit, we can edit this out. I was just gonna talk about. There's this like there's this um, dialect of boot. Oh, Do you know that. where's like like you're like, talking about these ones over here? Ge- geography, like like um. So we had these two women who were from uh, Monroe, like Louisiana, and they like uh-huh. we recognized their dialect immediately, and we're const- like yeah. instantly trading y'alls. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, but. But then if you watch boots walk by, it's the same kind of thing. Like there's a whole lot of, and I don't feel like I understand the language completely. Do you uh-huh. know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think I have the wrong boots. <laughs> I think we're, I think there's no, like, how do you know if you have the right one? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like I'm looking at this guy with the cowboy boot. I'm, I love the cowboy boot. Those are um, not Lucchese's, but they're a good Lucchese ripoff. <laughs> they're really, those are solid. That's like the same yeah. cut and everything. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I see that. But, I don't know. That's sort of timeless. Like you can do that. Yeah. Wherever you want. <laughs> this I became think. a fashion podcast. We're yeah. Like in or out. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you're out, man. <laughs> this person right here. I mean, in or out. The Saucony is strong. Yeah. That's a solid choice. Oh, which one is that? The Saucony shoe. I'm looking at the uh, the, the jeans uh, Sorry, the t- um, the the kicks, the sneakers. Oh, oh it's Coney's, Yeah. Is those it Saucony's? Like, in high school, that's what we called them. Saucony's. Oh, but those really? are good. Yeah. Is that how you say I, it? I'm looking at the jean, uh, the jeans. Like, oh, with the, with the tassel s- purse. Yeah. Tassel purse, uh, AWP bag, yeah, yeah. pink shoes. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, what's the favorite thing, your favorite thing that you've ever heard at AWP? You know how you like walk by and get just a snippet <laughs> without any context? Um, Have you gotten any of those yet? I really got to be honest. I don't know if I've had any weird ones yet. That I've been like, I haven't had, what's the weirdest one you've heard? Uh, we just, we were talking about um, this couple that walked by and they're, it was obviously like young love, you know, so they're really looking out for each other <laughs> and they're really connected and the guy was like, baby, ever thought of yourself as a club poet <laughs> what does that even mean i don't know she goes what do you mean he's like you know <laughs> in the club <laughs> like uh that's like a compliment yeah like, he's like he's like no you, you're just it's, this is not your scene you don't understand these, these people don't understand I yeah yeah that's like exactly percent of people around here is that people people really this is the one thing about awps i feel like people it, it people really just want to be understood and there's something kind of like really tender about that too. There is, yeah. where, where people are like uh, walking around, they're just hoping to be accepted, and there's a there's an anxiety. It feels like it's like middle school that way. I think it's that's sort of distilled in that way, but it's also like also uh, really endearing because you, you realize that beyond all the the hard candy and all the sort of like these shells we put up around us, uh, that everyone's just kind of softy at the end of the day. It's kind <laughs> yeah. of it's kind of it's kind of liberating to be like, oh, we're all kind of just like it into the gooey center <laughs> yeah we just love and we want to be loved and if we happen to crash a 90 year old refugee's house in the process of doing that we will convert her to the ways of bdsm at 90. cringy right now it's it was it's the cringy kind of of uh i'm for it i'm for letting your freak flag fly i'm 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 but not in the 90 year old lady's refugee's house yeah 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 as she's like, um, like making food and stuff, you know, that's like her side gig. It's it, it was weird. Yeah, yeah. And the readings you could tell there, it was good. It was a good event. <laughs> yeah, it was a really good event. Smack that on Speaking it. of of um, in the, in the, in that vein, these shirts you guys got. Yeah, man. <laughs> the fucking Shakespeare podcast shirts were made by my buddy. Diego. Yeah. From Mexico City. Yeah. One of the first people deported under Trump. And that's his business. That's his side hustle. That's a fucking awful distinction to have. I know. It was, it's like, it doesn't define him. Maybe that's the, I'm going to, I'm going to, the onus is on me for even framing it in that way. But I think it's, I just love the name of his, um, the name of his uh, business is called Fuck La Migra. It's like, that's how he, it was the first thing that he thought of when he landed in Mexico City. Yeah, yeah. It became um, the name of his business, and it's gone like kind of mini viral. Yeah. But I think you guys and one other person, I want to say out here in Portland, are the only officially like fuck la migra like vendors in the United States. Right on. Yeah. He he does a lot of stuff in Mexico, a lot of stuff in Central America, but those stories have a have a beautiful story behind them. We like to share it all the time. We were uh, talking about it to somebody who bought the shirt already. Yeah. So and people get really. Happy to hear that they're supporting uh, the good work of people like that. Stuff undocumented people. Yeah. yeah. For those of you who don't know, who aren't in the know, who are maybe listening to this for the first time, Diego was one of these guys, obviously I talked about earlier, one of the first people deported under Trump, but was one of these guys who literally had the kid ripped out of his arm at an ICE checkpoint and uh, is right now is fighting for custody of his kid uh, in Dalton, Georgia. Um, the kid is, is fine. Is, is sort of with his... Uh, grandmother and stuff, but Diego's raising money with these shirts basically to fight that legal battle. Um, I think his ex-wife, who is uh, not fit to be a parent, 
is um, fighting for custody of him as well. And so it's complicated in that way, but it's also complicated because it's an international fight right. between an American citizen, his kid, and a Mexican citizen, a Mexican national. So those shirts, <coughs> they mean a lot to him. And I think it's really cool that you guys were able to team up and like do that. Yeah, man. Well, thanks for connecting us to him. Yeah, he's, awesome. he's, he's great. And yeah. how did you meet Diego? I met him at a fundraiser. He was uh, fun raising funds at this place called Pocha House in Mexico City, which they do a lot of cool work with Gabriela Jauregui and uh, a bunch of Mexican writers who do workshops there. It's a community space where he was raising funds to um, basically uh, um, do this legal battle. Yeah. So <laughs> when he started making, um, and they were raffling off some of the shirts there, but when you and Fu approached me and be like, hey, this would be cool, we could um, work with him. I was like, hell yeah. You know, and he yeah. was really starving for business, and I think um, you guys were able to support him for just bought a bunch of shirts from him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have you sold any here? Yeah, yeah, we have. Yeah, we awesome. have. So come on down. Come and buy, yeah. And are they on the website and stuff? Yeah, for sure. Cool. com under the merch. Yeah. To bring page. this full circle, get your uh, AWP fashion right. Get, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get the fucking Shakespeare uh, shirt made from my buddy Diego, who is... Uh, He's one of the all-time greats. I mean, he's he's just his designs are so incredible. Right on. Yeah. Wear them with whatever, whatever boots you want. With whatever jean thing you got going on, <laughs> with the Doc Martens. I've seen a lot more Doc Martens than I have. I'm like, excited. They're coming back. Yeah, yeah. I saw some that were like, uh, I saw the classic brown, but then I saw this like saddle, saddly brown. It was like light brown. It was yeah. really nice. Yeah. No, the, I I, I used to have a pair of those when I was in middle school. Cause we're kind of like, do you remember, like in 1990. Yeah. Nine, ninety-eight. That was like Doc Martens, like, and they were, they were expensive. Yeah. They still are. But at I'm that time, thinking like ninety-four, man. Oh yeah. Well, was that like you're like with the suede head thing generation, like? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. And it was like, I had the Doc Martin Mary Janes. Uh huh. In that like cranberry color or wine or whatever. It was yeah. Very. It's like some Alanis Morissette vibes. Up it is very Alanis. Yeah. 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 It, and I think it was. Uh, they were like a hundred bucks or something, which yeah. is crazy. That's expensive for a shoe. Yeah. Like back in the day. Hell yeah. 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 It was like, it represented a ton of uh, uh, table busing at J. Christopher's Italian restaurant. Is that, is that what your first job? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Hell yeah. What did, so did you ever like work your way up or was it just table busing? Um, I was a busser and then I actually washed dishes in the back. Oh shit, man. These are like really That's tough jobs. That's going backwards. I don't know how I, I, don't know how I like I was... <laughs> It, and then it's then I climbed back up and I was um, I got to be the hostess for a little bit uh -huh. um, and pour water and someone literally walked, stood up in the middle of like a Saturday dinner and was like what's it take to get some water in this place oh my god that's the worst when they come to you yeah yeah and like the 15 year old me like rolled into myself like a hedgehog it was awful oh but um, but I think everyone should work in a restaurant yeah, yeah, yeah. do you do you feel like um, you know, they always say that, like, you should work in a restaurant to have empathy for the people who work there. Yeah, yeah. But does the opposite ever happen to you? Because, like, now you know how the operation works. We're like, man, this guy's fucking doing his job. You have less empathy? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, not bad, not like, bad. this guy's And do you feel like you feel completely legitimate in standing up and saying, what the fuck does it take to get some yeah. water in this place? <laughs> you don't know that guy's story. That was the guy who had your job before you, and he's just showing up. Like, that was his job that he got fired from, and he came, and he's like, oh, that's a new guy? All right. Hey, what's a take? Take. He's like trying to get you fired. He's like, I'm gonna get my job back. I'm doing it for the kids. You know, you know. Oh my God, Daniel, you just reframed my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. What was your first job? 
oh man my first job was at this is like sounds really bougie it was like at Kalaloo Literary Journal I was like 18 my parents what? wouldn't let me work in high school so I actually had cool parents who were like they didn't want me to uh, my parents come from like my dad's a doctor my mom runs the office she, she was a teacher but they both worked really hard labor jobs when they were young and it just like I knew from my dad like destroyed his body not like yeah, but he was working on farm and he was like you have the rest of your life to work and you want to be a writer and uh, it's just not going to work out man <laughs> it's just like he's like you'll be doing there'll be time for your manual labor you know <laughs> so he's just like just chill just take it slow now take it slow now preserve your body but they were all about like preserving the body which is like really unusual for Mexican families actually because Mexican families are all like like the work is like everything you know yeah. like, there's a lot of like pride in labor but they hmm. they were really hard on education which is I was lucky in that way but Kalaloo, it was a great journal, the uh, premier and I think first journal of the African diaspora. It was oh based out of Texas A&M, it was great. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. What was your, did you have any like, hey man, what's it take to get some water in this joint <laughs> experiences? Yeah. No, I was um, at, the at journal? Kalaloo, um, you know, I was so dumb and young <laughs> that I was like, I didn't even have the, uh, I still feel like I don't have I just feel lucky like all the time that I even get to do this kind of stuff I don't mean that in like a like a faux priority way I'm like literally like am I did I cheat somebody <laughs> maybe I just won't speak up maybe I'll just <laughs> yeah. don't tell anybody babe. don't tell anybody I can't do this job don't tell anybody I can't fly this plane <laughs> you know? and so that was like my thing at Kalu where I was like uh, just I'm just gonna lay low and do my job and fill these waters. Yeah. Now I do. Now I'm an advisor to a journal, so I'm just like, I have a lot of complaints. Oh, foo! Oh, fashion emergency. Right here. Right. Oh my God, Daniel! Thanks for being a. Thanks for being the uh, Bill Murray. Is he another host? It's around <laughs> all the, bills, all the time. Be, thanks for being the Doc Martin. Thanks for being the Doc Martin to our uh, yeah. SNL Your last podcast. name's Martin. Oh my God! Yeah. Holy shit! We came full circle. We did. Cut out all the all the terrible stuff I said. Thanks, brother. Thanks so much for this, man. Yes. Hi. Um, my name is Daniela Petrova. I'm originally from Bulgaria. I grew up there during communism, but I've been living in New York for the past, God, 24 years. Nice. So, yeah, I'm more of a New Yorker at this point than a Bulgarian, <laughs> except for my accent. <laughs> and what brings you to AWP? I'm a writer. Um, I've been writing poetry, short stories, and novels. Uh, I started with poetry when I was about eight, nine years old in That's Bulgaria. Okay. But I have uh, my first novel is coming out in June from Putnam, so I'm super excited, and that's why I'm here to meet other authors, to network, to promote my book. Is this your first AWP? I actually went to another one uh, years ago in DC. Okay. Yes. And how do you find it? How do you find AWP? It's exciting, but also overwhelming. That's the word. That is yes. the word we keep hearing. It's definitely, uh, yeah, overwhelming. This is a beautiful book. Thank beautiful you. book. Can you tell us about your publishing journey, how you found your way to Putnam? Did you have an agent first? Yes. So basically, 
have been writing for years and years. Uh, this is not the first novel I wrote. Uh, I'm kind of embarrassed to show anyone the first novel, but it was very helpful. I learned so much from it. Um, so basically, I've been doing a lot of freelance writing, um, essays, articles, uh, Q&As, interviews, and I was doing an interview with one of my teachers, Curtis Sittenfeld, uh, when um, her latest book came out, and so during the interview, uh, or rather after the interview, we were chatting li a little bit, she asked me what I was working on, and I told her about this book, and she asked if I had an agent, and I told her no, and she said, well, here are a couple of names of um, agents who love working with new authors, and oh, wow. so I basically emailed one of uh, the two agents, uh, my agent is Lisa Grupka, I emailed her, that was like three years ago maybe, even four, and so I sent her the first 50 pages, she wanted to see the rest, and, and I was, started jumping yeah, in joy. Yeah. I was super excited, but um, I didn't want, I wanted to revise before I show it to her, so I actually, you know, waited before, I just didn't. I was too embarrassed uh, to show her the first draft I had, so I basically took a few months uh, to revise, and then I sent her the new draft, and so... And she was like, yes, yes? Uh, no, she wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, okay, I love the premise, and you know, I love a lot of things about the book, but um, you know, I think I, you need to do more work, so you know, she gave me her notes, I revised, then I sent it to her again, and she gave me her notes again and then I revised one more time. <laughs> and so basically, over the course of two years, right, I did two revisions with her and then uh, last spring, I sent her the last revision and she was super excited and she said, let's start shopping it around. And basically, um, a week after, I mean, it really, it was very quick, a week wow. after we had the deal. Oh my gosh. Yes, yeah, I'm super great. excited. We love hearing the Cinderella stories on the show. They don't always, they don't always um, work out always like this, but I love to hear that it did for you. That's fantastic. Thank you. And, I'm, and I also love hearing um, when our community um, established writers like Curtin Settenfeld. I guess Curtis Settenfeld, you, you, she was your teacher and yes. was willing to, you know, give you some names and help you through the process. I love hearing that that's happening. Thank you very much so. I mean, she was so instrumental uh, in getting this yeah. book out. Um, and I learned so much in her class. I took the summer writers workshop. Okay. Uh, and it was a fantastic class. Um, it was a great group and yeah we learned so much so when does the new book come out so yes my novel for daughter's mother comes out june 18. um yes. you want to tell us what it's about i know you told me about it Maybe i told you about it a little bit uh it's domestic suspense psychological thriller and it's about a newly pregnant woman who encounters her anonymous egg donor on the subway. She recognizes her from the photos. Uh, she has picked her out uh, from an agency and um, recognizes her from the photos and starts following her. Uh, she's hungry to find out more about the woman whose genes her baby will inherit. And 
follows her, befriends her, and a week later the young woman disappears. So the pregnant yes. woman finds herself um, a key suspect in the investigation, but she's also very committed to find out what happened to the woman who has given her the gift of pregnancy and has helped her, um, you know, is making this uh, possible for her. So she starts uncovering a lot of secrets that kind of change her world. I can't yeah. wait to read it. Can, where can people follow you to know when it launches and, uh, and buy the book? So yes, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, my name is Daniela Petrova. Uh, my handle on Twitter and Instagram is Daniela G Petrova. Okay. That's hard. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. We'll link to it on the show. Okay, perfect. Yeah. 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 So basically, yes, I'm on all social media. Great. Well, thanks for stopping by the show. Thank you so much for Appreciate having it. me. talking to Tori. Tori, can you give me like a full introduction, who you are? And, uh, uh, yeah, 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 totally. Um, uh, I'm Tori Cardenas. I'm from Taos, New Mexico, but I live in Albuquerque now. Um, I, went, I originally went to Albuquerque for my undergrad, um, and I got my undergraduate degrees in history and, um, and poetry. Um, oh man, that's and, awesome. Yeah, yeah, I really, um, I really like what history kind of affords me to do, like um, a bunch of research that I can't get paid for and then try to put it into my work so yeah. like yeah I like where the two intersect I um, have a we have a third uh, member of the Bloomsday team mm -hmm. and she's she does the same thing with science so yeah. she's like an amateur scientist that's, and just yeah, like exactly. minds for all the incredible metaphors that oh, exist awesome. in the world of science yeah so, there's so yeah. much vocabulary there that we haven't even mined into so yeah. that's that's a super cool like interdisciplinary poetry thing yeah yeah, yeah. Right awesome. um uh and then i after i graduated um i worked for apple for three years oh crap um, that's which awesome was, yeah yeah it was, it was pretty interesting it's i mean it was still retail right but um i don't know i felt like i maybe learned a little bit more about how the world actually is outside of the classroom um, <laughs> I'm, I'm such a nerd, like, I'm, I'm really about um, academics, but I don't know, working there kind of gave me more opportunities to see, like, what I could do with writing. Yeah. Um, more than school really did, which is weird, but I don't know, I'm, I'm grateful for the time I had there. Um, we talk about that a lot, um, that being in the silo, um, the academic silo for so long can be detrimental. Yeah. We learn so yeah. much and we get exposed to so much. Um, but then e there's no substitute for actual real like life. Like being on, like boots on the ground. Exactly. Uh, oh, and I started my, my MFA last year. Uh, no, we're in 2019. I started it 2017, so yeah. I'm almost done. There you go. Um, yeah, almost done with that. Thank you. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I started in poetry, and then I, I moved to fiction. We were talking about uh, um, Apple, real-world experience. Right, like, oh yeah, and, um, and then coming back like into academia after that. Yeah, yeah. Um, geez, I don't know. It, it kind of gave me more perspective on, I don't know, the, like the politics of academia. Um, like working through the politics in a retail store and like kind of understanding how that works where, where you have like HR and 
I don't know, all of that kind of red tape and then coming over across into academia and like kind of not facing the exact same thing, but um, I don't know, similar situations yeah. like around, I don't know, I have, I have really bad anxiety. So sometimes like engaging with that on um, just a departmental level um, versus having to deal with HR, I don't know. I think having the experience from Apple and like um, kind of going toward um, going toward academia, I had more experience dealing with management, dealing with HR, dealing with that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so maybe I maybe I learned a little bit more about how to like stick up for myself. Sure. I think, honestly, yeah. Yeah, and like I I know what this is now. Yeah, exactly. Kind of get into <laughs> yeah. the groove of it a little more. Right. And understand it. Um, and maybe, I mean, for me, it was like picking out um, the shit that's going to matter in the long run exactly. versus like, I could get really worked up about this at this mm-hmm. point and I would be, you know, well-founded. It would be right. well-founded doing right. that. But at the end of the day, it's like... It's like, is this really going to matter? Is this really yeah. going to help me? Yeah, yeah. No. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so tell me about the poetry that you write. Yeah. Um, I, I've gotten... I don't know, coming from my undergrad to my master's, I think I've gotten a much better idea of what I like to write about um, and what I want to do with my writing. Um, so obviously I'm from New Mexico, but growing up, um, I just had a lot of influence from from like folklore. Um, okay. Like there were always stories that um, my older family members would tell um, or that we would hear uh, from family members and stuff um, when we would get together. Um, especially scary stuff like oh don't go outside or they're gonna get you like mira mijita la llorona's coming she's gonna take you away like oh yeah yeah (laughs) so kind of kind of writing about that stuff and like how we access fear um or how we um how, how we access fear but also how we process it or turn it around in a way that we can that we can use as as courage, I guess I'm not sure I'm, oh, what I'm trying to good. say, but like that's kind good. of harnessing the um, the anxieties that we built um, through folklore, through stories that we tell um, to like our kids or that we tell to ourselves, um, and then kind of using that as power um, and, and kind of taking it back nice. um, and like using La Llorona as a as a feminist icon or. Um, sort of using like uh, using stories as as ammunition in a world where they're trying to be suppressed. Um, so that's that's kind of what I focus on um, mostly, and then also themes of resistance. Um, yeah. You want to read to us? Totally. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, well, this is the um, first uh, AWP poet we've had on. So <laughs> look alive. Listen up. Right on. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I had this published in, in Writers Resist, um, which is a, it's an anthology and an online journal that focuses mostly on, on resistance work. Um, and this poem is called uh, Why Poets Aren't on TV. Um, so I'll read that for you now. <clears throat> Poets aren't on TV because they cry when they are asked about their feelings. Poets are messy. Poets will tell it like it is. They will tweeze out the words you meant from an argument and divinate the heart of you by casting your dry finger bones. Poets are easily distracted. They will not settle for limited omniscience and will write a poem from the bottom of an ocean or a planet orbiting a distant star. Poets are old, deep wells with trolls still living in them. Poets refuse to read from the teleprompter. 
Poets will only read aloud with the dangling vocal chimes of generations before them, the infected and murdered, the drugged, the persuaded and the robbed. Poets rewrite erased words. Poets only own black clothing and so are hard to fit into certain studio sets. Poets will not sit through hair and makeup. Poets are oblivious to commercial breaks. Their rib cages pulse with broken rhythms. Poets are lie detectors. They unstarch anchors' shirts with sex and politics and blood. There is no script for poetry. Poets are still trying to translate it into the vernacular. Poets aren't on TV because they are hard roles to cast. They are mirrors. And who would want to watch a blank screen? Thank you. Nice. About it. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thanks for having awesome. me. We look forward to watching, uh, watching more of your work, hearing more of your work. Um, can you just tell our listeners where they can find more of your stuff? Totally, yeah. Um, so Writers Resist, I have one poem in their online journal and then one in their anthology. Um, I was also a finalist in Rabbit Catastrophe Press's Real Good Poem Prize last year. Um, and I have some of my fiction kind of floating around out there. Um, uh, I have Are fiction you on in... uh, poetry, poetry Twitter? Oh, uh, I am, I'm on Twitter. Yeah, okay, it's uh, it's at Monsoon Poet. Okay. Um, I do love monsoon season in Albuquerque. That's my favorite time of year, so I had to go with that one. Nice. Um, and my website is uh, cardenaspoetry.com. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Awesome, thank you. Ben, I'll let you introduce yourself and uh, tell okay. us about what you do. Sure. Um, my name is Ben Risto. Um, I'm a fiction writer as well as an academic scholar. Um, I teach at a small liberal arts college, Hobart and William Smith, uh, in central New York. Um, so I publish both short fiction primarily and also academic work that focuses on creative writing studies. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, and you've got a book coming out, is yes. that right? Bloomsbury? Yes. So it's a brand new series that Bloomsbury is developing. It's called Researching Creative Writing. Oh, cool. So it's theorizing about how you teach writing. So. The history of that goes back to Wendy Bishop in the early 90s, um, and I think there's growing traction among publishers interested in talking about teaching as well as institutional history and that sort of thing. Sure, so. which is great purchase for you guys who have been doing this work for a long time in the classroom now to have it sort of out in uh, the publishing world is important. Too. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. fantastic. So. Um, and then your piece for the series, can you talk talk more specifically yes. about what that is? So it's the contract was signed about a month ago, so it's still forthcoming in 2020. Okay, the ink is, is a, still a little wet. That's right, and uh -huh. it's a sort of strange thing to say 2020. Um, yes. Yes. But the title of the work is Craft Consciousness and Artistic Practice and Creative Writing, so the impetus of the book is really um, around the notion of craft and how we conceptualize it, because it's so central to creative writing and yeah. it's sort of like the god term um, of the field so I became really interested in studying how other artists interpret and understand oh, the notion of craft and how it intersects with their work and their practice because I really think um, the scholarship that has looked at creative writers has primarily come from composition studies yeah and so it hasn't really framed creative writing teaching uh, through the lens of other artists and artistic practice. Oh, that's so that's the really, intersection that I'm really in, interested in. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction because when you were speaking about it, I was definitely thinking about composition. Exactly. And that this is a different beast because yep. you're yep. talking about art. 
That's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, very cool. I feel like we could have an entire episode just devoted to this one thing. I'm sure many more. And if Bloomsbury is saying this is going to be a series, that's really exciting for you yeah. guys. And it'll be probably the inaugural book in that series, so that's exciting too. That is. Um, but the project has been really fun because it really means that I, as a fiction writer, get to talk to different artists, everything from furniture makers to sculptors to mixed media folks in Rome. Um, so I'm oh trying to bring like an international flair, and Bloomsbury's really interested in perspectives on craft that sort of talk about it from an international perspective yeah. um, because of their profile as publishers. But also creative writing is becoming really large internationally. Um, so programs, especially in the UK, are really exploding. Um, so, you know, as our programs exploded in, from the 60s to the 1990s, they're experiencing a real boom in creative writing. So I think talking about creative writing within those terms is, I think, important in those contexts. So here's a question. I don't know if this is um, your purview, but if we think about the sort of boom that happened here and then um, maybe one of the resulting sort of uh, things that issued from that was like, you know, all these students going to school, coming out with degrees and finding it difficult to find jobs. Yeah. Is there any way to sort of like preempt that or head that off with the a similar European boom that you're speaking of for those programs? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I think it's good to have more readers and writers in the world. I, I think too. despite what like Flannery O'Connor said at the Iowa workshop that we should not have, we should have less writers in the world. I think more is better. I think it expands the purview of kind of literary studies, but also I think people do lots of things. Um, coming out of MFA programs and PhD right. programs. So um, one of the ways that I've sort of conceptualized my identity as a writer is to be able to do many different things. Um, so to be able to do scholarship and short fiction and have a kind of broad stance around my sort of relationship to writing in the world. So I like having a kind of creative and academic sort of split in my identity. Um, and I, I don't think we've done enough study of what MFAs do afterwards and what they do in their life. Do they work for nonprofits? Um, do they work in corporate communication? Do they go on to support literary journals? Um, I think with literacy where it's at in our country um, and in the UK, I think it's a good thing uh, overall. Yeah, maybe that's sort of some of the anecdotal hand-wringing hand about, yeah, yeah that, that uh, there's too many of them and we don't know where to put them, but but, but in, what studies have been done and where right. are we exactly? Yeah, and yeah. tenure track positions, I think, are just one outcome. Sure. And it's a much smaller outcome with very, very little tenure track positions um, in that. Um, right. So I don't know about the UK and what kind of formation they'll have, but they've become interested in the study of creative writing. Um, and I think we've done a lot of that work in the States. Um, prior to their kind of development and program. So I think cool. it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a great question, though. What about, can we back up just a little sure. bit and talk about um, the book? Were you, uh, did you pitch Bloomsbury with this idea, or how did you guys connect and yep. sort of uh, push that forward for them? Um, they asked for kind of an informal proposal as they were proposing the series. So I sent them a short document. Um, Two they to three kind pages. Of knew you yeah, already. and so that was maybe 18 months ago, and then um, they 
asked for the proposal intro and first chapter, and we sort of went from there. So it accelerated really quickly um, as far as the approach. So the series is brand new, so it wasn't we weren't sure if that was going to be accepted as a series, but they've become interested um, and done a lot of work in sort of generating that. Um, two books, one by Janelle Adsick called Toward Inclusive Creative Writing, um, and then another one by Trent Hergenrader um, about world building. Um, kind of shows the expansion of creative writing, um, and Bloomsbury's interested in that. Um, but I'm excited, I'm a new author, and this is my first contract. Um, so I'm excited and nervous and yeah. all the things that that entails. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. We talk a lot about pub journeys on the show, and yeah. um, and they're all different. As, That's right. As different as the writers that we get right. on the show. So yeah. nice to hear um, the sort of academic side of the the book proposal because it's very different yeah. than scouting and courting yeah. agents and that kind of thing. So you got to bypass some of that. Yeah, but they did the submission process. I gave them a proposal intro and first chapter, and then they sent that out to reviewers outside of their series editors. Um, and to so, see if there would be traction? Yeah, to see if there would be traction, if they'd recommend publication, if they felt like they understood where this book fit within the sort of market. Um, so all of that, I think, was really exciting to have all these reviewers give you information and recommendations. And so, you know, as I'm working on the manuscript, I'm able to see okay. kind of how reviewers understood the book and kind of where to go with it. So oh, awesome. um, it's been good. And then on the side, I set out short fiction and, and throw my stuff into the slush pile. Yeah. But, yeah. So tell us a little bit about uh, the short fiction you, that you write. Um, so short fiction um, that I write has been, there's been a kind of synergy between the academic side and the creative side. Um, but creative work I send out um, pretty religiously and in the seasons that that's appropriate. Um, I've published in Bomb Magazine, um, Terrain.org, um, recently in the Southwest Review. Um, so I continue to kind of try to keep traction in that um, and work on short fiction as well. And I'm work I will be working on a longer short fiction piece, a story collection, um, when I finish this current book project. Oh, so, fantastic. Yeah. Cool. So what are you uh, most excited about seeing at AWP or, or doing at AWP? Um, seeing friends and the sort of readings that they've organized is important to me. Um, and I have a panel on Friday where I'll talk and blurb the book. Oh, um, good. So this has been good practice yeah, uh, for good. that. Um, so that stuff, but I think there's also the social dimension of this, where I get to see friends, graduate friends, but professors from yonder years. Yeah, for all the gripes about the conference, it is a friendly place. That's right. It's, yeah, it's really nice yeah. to connect with those people. Yeah. Ben, it's been great to have you uh, yeah. step into our little haven here. That's right. It's a wonderful little nest. You've beautifully <laughs> curated this with books. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care. That was way fun. Man, that was really cool. Yeah. So you said creative writing studies, and I had something else completely in my head. What did you have? This is great. Um, I was really thinking composition. I don't know why. Uh, well, that's where it comes from. Because, because yeah, we come out of academics, right? Right. And, and, yeah, so I was thinking CCCS. Is that the acronym? Uh, four C's, yeah. The four C's, yeah. yeah. So and I was thinking about you know, friends from the graduate program who sort of broke yeah. off of creative writing and went that direction. Yep. And um, I have an education background, so I got a master's in teaching before I came into the um, MA program at UT. Yep. And so um, this is a really interesting sort of intersection. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's... Um, 
composition has sort of took up creative writing and its study somewhere in the early 90s. But part of what's happening there is they're like, creative writers shape up and get your teaching in order. And I don't really, th I don't think that that's instructive or useful uh -huh. to really map everything that composition studies values and sees within that context in what creative writers do. I think they relate, I think it, when you look at these publishers around art making and artistic practice. So I feel like that's more of the sort of natural relationship of writers. Yeah. It's not other writers uh -huh. in other fields. Right, it's, right, right, right. It's writers and artists are one and the same, yeah. at least in this context. Yeah. So anyway. Well, I will be anxious to get my hands on the book. Yeah, and Bloomsbury's got their little booth right over there. So you'll have to check it out. Yeah, yeah. Did, so. Are there, oh, well, no, it's 2020. No, no. There are no, no. advanced copies. The no. copy doesn't exist no. yet. It doesn't exist. <laughs> so. Well, good luck. Thank good you. Luck. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm just jumping in here. <laughs> He's the guest host. These are the hosts. Oh, okay. So it's like when like Stephen Colbert is sick, you know? They'll have like Roger, yeah, Roger Dangerfield come out. I don't know. Yeah. He's even alive. You're a Dangerfield. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Daniel Field, yeah. I took a, you can tell it's 5 o'clock because I took like all two of my brain cells to come up with that. Okay. <laughs> all right. Okay. We are live. We are recording. We're live. Okay, so I'm here with MS Co., whose book? New Veronia. Comes out? November. From? Clash Books. Right on, man. Welcome to the fucking Shakespeare podcast. How are you Thank doing? You. It's been five years since I've seen you. Yeah. And uh, I hear you recently moved to Flagstaff. <laughs> or you've been in Flagstaff. Mm -hmm. I've been in Flagstaff for five years now. Wow. Where you live with uh, Will and Tomo? Tomo, our leopard gecko, and don't forget Tiki, the oh, Chinese shit, that dog. dog. And how how old is the dog now? Eight. And Tomo is ten. Tomo is ten years old. And you he's say a he's lizard. Oh my god. Yeah, he has little kidney problems, but apparently they don't do kidney transplants on lizards. No. <laughs> so <laughs> what's that about? Have you uh, have you? Uh, did you inquire? Like, did they? Did they? Yeah, we took him to the vet. The vet was like, you know, all we can do for him is give him this little medicine and he gets fluids. Oh, shit, yeah. Injection. Wow. Fluids in his little side. He's like geriatric style. Uh, what's, He's an what's, old lizard. What's the oldest? Have you gotten contact with like the Guinness Book of World Records? Is it like the oldest lizard? No, they can live to be like 13. That's oh, about the wow. max. So, yeah, I'm holding out for 11. Dude, yeah. We'll and, and, and what do you do out in Flagstaff? Writing full time? Um, no, I'm a travel agent. Oh shit, that's cool. For a remote company, so I can work from home. Is this like FBI stuff? Mm, no. no. <laughs> like a Those remote company. Very rich people uh -huh. taking fancy vacations and small business travelers. Right on, man. Yeah. What's the weirdest place you've booked? Hmm. Well, I booked somebody on a trip to Australia and New Zealand. Uh -huh. And their land arrangements were like 60 grand. I was Whoa. like, I don't even understand how you can spend and they're from that much money. No, they what's the big industry in Flagstaff? Okay, LA. Yeah. I was about to say, what's the big industry in Flagstaff? It's gotta be like... River running and skiing. Yeah, do you do some of that? <laughs> no. no. No? Does some of that make it to the book? Is the book about Arizona, the Southwest? 
Um, no, the book is set in Delaware and Florida. <laughs> really? <Yeah. too? laughs> you went completely opposite. So yeah. how did you go back to the East Coast? Because last time, last time I saw you, we were well. It was AWPTC, but we actually went to Cornell together. Yes. We were there for you. You were my. Uh, you, you helped me find my house. Yeah, you, you lived in my apartment building. I lived in your apartment building. <laughs> Um, and I must have been the worst neighbor. I, I was. I remember being severely depressed at that time, and I remember I just would not clean my apartment. And I was just. I was just existing in there, and you guys checked in very sweetly and were like, "Hey, you guys all right? Everything <laughs> here fine." But how did you? Enough about me. How did you choose Delaware and Florida for the setting of your book? Well, my partner Will is from Delaware, yeah. and I find it a fascinating. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Yeah. Strange. Uh, very small state that has its own thing going on, especially in the south. Like, the north is a little more suburb of Philly. Uh But the south, where he is from, is pretty south. Yeah. Um, And Florida, I've always been obsessed with the idea of alligators and swamps and crocodiles and all these things living together. Yeah. Florida's a weird state, man. Yeah. yeah. I think I like to write about places I'm not currently too. Yeah. Um, it helps me remember there are places outside of where I exist. Yeah. That's the, it's the, that's the, uh, that's life, man. That's like, uh, I'm going to edit that out. I just want brain dead right now. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a quick synopsis of the book? Well, the book is about a group of teenage boys who are losers at school but they're great friends uh, with each other and things go bad <laughs> so, the Cornell MFA experience things go bad yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a lot of pent up frustration and anger in yeah. their home lives and that bleeds into their friendship right on man I can't wait for it to come out it's coming out when again November 2019 hell yeah uh, thanks for joining us Thank on the fucking so Shakespeare it's podcast. Great to see you again. Yeah, man, always good seeing you. <laughs> All right. Effing Shakespeare is brought to you on the backs of the harried, unpaid, and not quite starving artists that make up Bloomsday Literary, and also the good people at Houston Creative Space. Photography, video, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. Guys, we have effing Shakespeare t-shirts. Effing shirts! Have you Marie kondo the hell out of your closet and now all your t-shirts are car wash rags? If so, effing Shakespeare shirts will be sure to spark joy in your life for years to come. More importantly, these shirts are produced by our friend Diego in Mexico City. You can read more about his story and how these t-shirts came to us and place an order on our website, bloomsdayliterary.com. I was about to say adorable, but I guess adorable is an adjective that we shouldn't be using anymore. Yes, we just had that talk. I know, I, but they were, it was adorable in the way that young love is adorable. Is that not, can I use the adjective in that way? Like, can't we say adorable that way? Yes, you could totally say adorable that way. Um, and she, he said, he was he was very sweet too, he was like kind of doting and said, babe, do you ever think of yourself as a club poet? And she said, a club poet? And he goes, you know, 
in the club. <laughs> I didn't hear the rest of the conversation. I, I don't understand. <laughs> I yeah, I need going. the context too. In I the know, club. but that's what happens. You're just walking around getting and you, snippets you of hear that, that weird stuff. Okay. Yeah. 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 And it was so sweet because he called her baby. Hey, baby. Hey, baby. Do you ever think of yourself? <laughs> yeah. Hey, baby. As a club poet. So you guys, when you're out there looking for love, find that person who's always on the lookout for, you know, like where, your where, genre. Yeah. Like your how niche, you your fit. Niche. In the world. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's what a good partner does for you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I love it. it. Sue, do you ever think of yourself as a club podcaster? (laughs) My tribe would be all my clubbies. Yeah. All my cute clubbies. What would Foo's followers be called? (laughs) We have F and Shakespeareans. Effin Shakespeareans. I I like Effin Shakespeareans. Yeah. That that has a ring to it. It has a natural ring to it. But I think there should be just like people devoted to you that would have a special name. Like Um, the Foobies. (laughs) The babies. The Foobies.